Hi, welcome to The Kicker. I'm Kyle Pope, editor and publisher of the Columbia Journalism Review. This week, we're continuing our coverage of the coronavirus, especially the coverage of spirituality and death around the virus. I was a journalist and in New York around 9-11, and I remembered so vividly the outpouring of emotion around the people who had died then. There were signs on lampposts, there were vigils, there were people hugging. There was there was this amazing collection of obituaries in the New York Times. But there were, death was a central part of that story. This virus, even though the death toll in the city and in the state and across the country is so much higher, has had a whole different tenor. And it's and it's raised challenges for journalists to figure out how to sort of cover this part of the story. I'm so thrilled to have Liz Brunig on, who is an opinion writer at the New York Times, who has written about this. Liz, welcome. Thanks so much for having me. Where were you around 9-11? I was in fifth grade (laughs) uh, at at Ditto Elementary School in Arlington, Texas. Nice. Um, But it it does stick in my mind um, because my mother uh, worked at the federal building in Fort Worth. Um, And they had been evacuated during the um, Oklahoma City bombing. Their building was scouted by Timothy McVeigh. So uh, at that point, federal buildings took these kinds of incidents extremely seriously. So my mom was evacuated and she picked me up from school. Um, So it it was disturbing and 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 it did stick in my mind, even though we were in Texas. So, you know, we weren't proximate to it at all. Yeah, I'm I'm an El Paso native myself. Oh, lovely. Wonderful. Yeah. So you wrote this beautiful piece for the Times about these Franciscan friars on the Upper East Side and how how they have uh, sort of adapted and struggled with this. Um, And I know that you've been a sort of keen watcher of how how the kind of um, both both the religious part of this story and, and even just the reporting on on how are we are processing this, these deaths has been sort of reflected in in news. What is your sense of how well news organizations are in sort of grappling with this part of it? I think that, that news organizations are, are doing pretty well. Um, religion is difficult for, for a lot of reasons, I think, uh, for journalists who are um, very well trained to cover. Um, and, and so it's a situation where, um, you know, journalists who are traditional news reporters who have a lot of training and a, and a great deal of, of scruples when they, you know, go to their work, um, have a difficult time with this. So, so it's a little bit of a paradoxical thing, but it's because so much of religion is interior. It's not observable. Um, it's difficult to draw conclusions about it um, just with the, you know, ordinary evidence that presents itself, um, you know, when you watch a religious service or you observe religious practice. But, but I think one of the good things to come out of that is there's been some excellent reporting that is just showing, not telling reporting. You know, a piece that ran in the Times on a funeral in Georgia um, yeah. that turned out to be a coronavirus hotspot, I think was a really excellent piece because it demonstrated how important ritual is to people, how important it is to say goodbye, you know, in those spiritual ways, um, and then the effects that that can have on a community. Yeah, I mean, you also draw, drew my attention to this video that the Times posted 
about how Orthodox community is sort of struggling with this and, and the sort of different approaches that people there are taking. In terms of the centrality of religion in your own work, you've been pretty open about your own faith. We had a version of this podcast a few months ago where we had people on talking about their own faith and how that has sort of shaped their coverage. How do you think about it in terms of your own writing? Yeah, so I think my faith um, is very important to, to my writing, not only because I have a, you know, a specialty, I, I, you know, I can cover um, things especially happening in the Christian world because I'm very well acquainted uh, with the, the tradition. Um, you grew up Methodist? That's right. That's right. And I converted to Catholicism uh, when I was in graduate school, getting my degree in Christian theology. Uh-huh. Um, so a little bit of an unusual trajectory. Uh, what, was when behind, I, what was behind that conversion? Yeah, it's funny. You know, I used to think that I knew. Um, <laughs> at the time, I would have told you, well, I, I've been reading a lot of theology, and I've simply become convinced that this is true. Um, and then the further I look back, the more I realize, yes, I was reading quite a bit of theology. Most of it was not remotely Catholic and was quite critical of Catholicism. So I've become skeptical of my own uh, narrative there. And I think ultimately conversion is like falling in love. Um, When I, when I knew I had to do it, I just knew that I had to do it. And when I did it, I realized that it was right. And there's nothing else in my life that's ever been like that, except, you know, marrying my husband (laughs) Um, and, and, you know, falling in love with him and, and, it was just something that, that happened inside. And I guess that's what makes religion so difficult is the way it resists narrative yeah. in that way. Yeah. I interrupted you. You were, you were telling me about the, the, how you've approached this in your writing. Yeah. So, so I mean, I, I think, you know, I was very interested because the Catholic Church, you know, in part because it's an easier organization to write about in a lot of ways. It has a central command. Um, so it can give orders like suspend all public masses, which has happened in several places. Uh, and, you know, you can have the Pope say, here's how the church is going to approach this, which he has done. Um, and then you get to watch uh, the world's Catholics react to that. In other parts of Christianity, it's a lot more difficult to get that kind of wide ranging uh, response from a, a, a single leader's directive, right? Because it's mm-hmm. much more fractured in terms of how uh, uh, power and leadership is distributed, um, you know, which is one of the benefits, um, I think, uh, you know, Protestants will, will argue uh, of, of doing religion in the way that they do. Um, so, so I, you know, I, I started with that kind of interest in how are Catholics going to react to this kind of unprecedented thing. Um, and uh, so one direction I went in was historical, and it turns out it's not unprecedented. It's actually pretty typical of how the church responds to plagues. And almost every time the church does it, people are furious about it mm-hmm. um, and say it's unprecedented. <laughs> and then the other question was, you know, just how are people going to get along spiritually? And I could identify a lot with that question myself. And so that's what I went looking for when I talked to these friars. Right. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I agree with you that the, on the you know if we if if we break this up into two categories sort of what are the rituals and how are people adapting the rituals to what's going on I agree with you that there's been some terrific coverage it's the second category and it and the second category is harder which is how are people sort of sort of processing this and 
accessing their own faith. I mean, maybe that's maybe it's just inherently hard to write about, right? But it's the one thing I'm just, you know, and maybe it's just I'm just trying to like every other human, I'm just trying to figure this out myself. But I, I, I'm not seeing reported work that's sort of speaking to me on that. I mean, maybe you think it's is it is it even doable? It's difficult because there are two questions, and and one of the questions is. Um, what are religious people doing during coronavirus? And that's yeah. fairly easy to answer. Yeah. Uh, we can talk about, and there has been excellent reporting on, you know, people using Zoom for funerals or, yeah. um, you know, other rituals, people postponing weddings, people yeah. um, postponing baptisms or performing baptisms themselves or having private masses or, you know, things like that. And then the other question is, how do you still love a benevolent God or maintain faith in a time like this? And you can report that story out, but so much of it is like that conversion sensation I talked about. So much of yeah. faith is an experience that I think is, is close to ineffable. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I just think that, you know, if, if the job of journalism is to write about what's going on in the world around us in a way that, you know, really connects with people's daily lives, you know, ha have, you're living in the middle of, of just enormous loss. I mean, I, I was I went running the other day and, and I didn't plan this, but I ended up jogging by my little by a fairly small sort of local hospital. I live in in uh, Brooklyn. And and I just just literally almost stumbled across two of those refrigerated morgue trucks, yeah. um, and I had I, it was sort of jarring because I wasn't expecting it and I hadn't thought that this would be there, um, yeah. but it you know it just so took me back and it just so reinforced this idea that wow I'm I'm just like this is this is such a huge part of this whole tragedy that's unfolding that we that I think part of it is just we're so uncomfortable with talking about death in general. So thinking about how to translate it into journalism is particularly hard. We've led such an impressive charge against death. Um, that's something that I've been thinking about quite a bit. There's, there's an excellent book by Ann Neumann um, called The Good Death. Um, and she reported this book out. So it's a piece of nonfiction. Yeah. Um, and, you know, one of her points is we've had so much success with with delaying death um, and pushing our life expectancies up. And we have sort of machines and technologies and techniques that can bring people back from the dead, you know, recently dead and, uh, and postpone death for so long that as one palliative care physician I talked to told me, you know, the usual dilemma of medical practitioners in the United States is when do we stop and just let someone die? Yeah. You know, because they can kind of drag it on and drag it on and drag it on under normal circumstances. Yeah. Um, but that's their typical challenge. And now they have the opposite challenge. But this has been the challenge of medicine for the majority of human history is, is saving lives. Right. So we've become, I think, a little bit, um, you know, a little bit um, accustomed to never having to face uh, the kinds of challenges that that medicine has faced and that religion yeah. has faced um, 
for the majority of human history. Th those forms of theodicy, those questions about the goodness and benevolence of God, haven't really been so intense in, in quite some time, you know, 100 years, 50 years, maybe. Um, but for a long time, for the majority of human history, those questions were omnipresent. So you've written about some of these issues, both at the Times and then when you were at, at the Post as well. There's a there's a stereotype of newsrooms that they're incredibly secular places, that everybody is sort of, if not anti-religious, sort of, it's not that part of their lives. I mean, I I think that that's actually not true, but I'm wondering how what you think about that, about that notion that journalism that, that there's journalism which is is a secular business, and then there's a spiritual part of our lives which is sort of separate. So I, yeah, I don't see that at all. I, you know, I was surprised because you know my impression of newsrooms when I came to the Washington Post as an editor in '16 was was essentially that that these are uh, secular places that the most important thing is this kind of uh, view from nowhere objectivity. Um, and then as I, I really met my colleagues and got to know them, I realized, you know, not only are these people from everywhere, uh, the, the colleague who taught me how to do my job, more or less, was from Toledo, uh, Ohio, originally. Um, and people come from all over the place in a newsroom. You know, you have people from Wisconsin, people from Indiana, people from Texas, uh, like me and, and several of my other colleagues in Washington Post opinion, my former colleagues were from Texas. Um, but also you meet deeply, deeply religious people who are informed every day by their faith. And that was certainly the case at the Post. It's certainly the case at the Times. Um, and not just uh, opinion, but news side. People are you know, influenced to ask certain questions by their faith. And, and that's true even in news reporting or to look in certain places. So it, it doesn't contradict their objectivity, but it does right. inform what they're doing. Yeah, I actually think it would be. I think it would be helpful for more journalists to talk about this more openly because I think it sort of feeds this. It feeds some of the mistrust of journalists and a sense, and a sense in some parts of the country that they're kind of alien creatures. Um, which oh is yeah, yeah, the liberal elite. Uh, yeah. No, no faith. Uh, no sense of uh, of mystery. Uh, all bloodless. Yeah, I, yeah. that's wrong. You wrote a beautiful piece, I guess it was about three years ago now, for The Post uh, that was framed as a kind of letter to your soon-to-be-born daughter that was a sort of welcome to the world um, <laughs> thing, which I thought was fantastic. And and uh, how many children do you have now? I have two. Right. Uh, is, is she the youngest? Yes. So Jane is my oldest. She's about to turn four. And the letter uh, was to Claire, who is nine months. Right. It was inherently a kind of, it, it was an optimistic, sort of beautiful thing about like, you were about to sort of enter this one, a world of wonder. Uh, it began with you sort of looking at some fireflies and being really moved by that and, and saying, how lucky is this creature to be able to sort of experience a world where that's the case. How have you talked to your children about what's going on now? So my my older daughter understands that something not great is happening, that she can't play with her friends right now. They can't yeah. be together at preschool. Um, and she understands that people are very sick and that we need to stay away from big groups of people. Um, and she knows it's called a virus. She knows it looks like a spiky ball. And she knows it's too small to see and that it lives in your blood. Uh, and she 
kind of vaguely understands um, that the way you get it is from close contact with other people. So we can't do that right now. Um, she's not terribly broken up about it. I've noticed kind of a few disturbing things, like when she builds with her magnetiles and her blocks, she builds hospitals. Oh, wow. But we, um, we have tried to not uh, telegraph alarm. Um, you know, we've told her we just need to kind of stay inside. And, um, you know, when, when we go to the store once a week, uh, we wear masks and, and she understands that she's okay with it. Um, you know, so the bigger question for me is looking back on that piece I wrote for Claire is, um, you know, man, having kids in a time like this, um, how do you, how does one do it? Yeah. And, uh, and and if you were writing it now, would it would the tone be very different? No, I, I, pain and suffering are such essential parts of human existence as we have it now. You know, they they're something that we're we're well made to deal with, I think. But a big part of that is meaning making. Um, finding some meaning in it is is really crucial, I think. Um, and I think that's what lots of people are struggling with. I've, I have epilepsy. I'll have it all my life. Um, and so I, I feel like I'm used to this kind of process of, um, mm. trying to make meaning out of things that are very painful and hard. And, and I trust that my kids will be able to do that as well. Yeah. Liz, it was great to talk to you. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for coming. Um, you can read our, our coverage of the coronavirus and journalism at CJR.org and every day on our daily email, The Media Today. Thanks for listening. See you next week. Mm-hmm.